0: Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host,
1: Cameron Harold. Our guest today is the Vice President and COO of Grey Matters Capital, Trese Kabundi. Often described as a game-changer and organizational secret weapon, Therese has built and managed initiatives and teams in Africa, Asia, Europe, and the U.S. Skilled at bridging strategy and operations, she's no stranger to capturing the big picture and driving tactical execution. With a relentless commitment to developing talent and fostering high-performance environments, she's garnered a reputation as a trusted servant leader. As the first ever chief operating officer of Gray Matters Capital, an impact investor with a 200 million assets under management across emerging markets, Teresa's led the restructuring of the 15 year old foundation and a successful culture turnaround. Prior to Gray Matters Capital, she served as a director at World 50, a private company designed to help the senior most executives of the world's largest organization stay ahead. Over the course of her tenure, she headed a client group of senior legal executives, designed sessions for business leaders, and curated connections between some of the most well-known business, government, and cultural figures. In the other streams of her life, Tree serves on the board of Premier Atlanta Fine Arts Center, Callenwold. Uh, advocates for more equitable systems and is actively engaged in growing and expanding her family's agribusiness. She regularly com- contemplates tiramisu for breakfast and why her family doesn't believe in 5.00 AM kickoffs for the road trips Terese, Welcome to the second in command podcast.
0: Thank you. Camera, I read,
1: I, re- I read the tiramisu for breakfast earlier and I started laughing because I'd just gotten back from yoga. I'm like, that would be perfect right now.
0: <laughs> yoga I, I, have this obsession with tiramisu that's never waned. And I think, you know, it's, I, I am that person, you know, even, even being mid thirties and I'm like, explain to me again, why we can't, there's espresso. Right. There's a good amount of carbs, there's dairy. Like it's a breakfast item. It's
1: fine. It's totally fine. And, and at the end of the day, we're all gonna die. So we may as well enjoy that one <laughs> meal, right?
0: you brought it there having my African background and African family who are superstitious. I'm pretty sure at any point they hear this, they're like, why is Tree talking about dying? But-
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you chase but, yeah. down the tiramisu? Do you have like a, a list of restaurants that you still have to go to, or do you, um, do you make it or what's the deal with it?
0: I do not, I do not make it. I can cook, but anything that starts requiring baking or that level of assembly, the problem is that where I love cooking is that it allows me to have a recipe be open to interpretation uh, and I have learned the hard way with baking and making such things that it's not open to interpretation. It's more of a science. And okay. yeah, that's where I find a lot of my creativity too. So I'm like sugar, half a cup. I think we can go a little bit more and it doesn't rise. And it's like, what went wrong?
1: <laughs> that's what I felt. So with cooking, you can improvise, but with baking, you're supposed to follow it to the science. Yes. And I'm like you, I like to improvise. So I'm terrible at baking.
0: Yeah, but um, no, to answer your question, I think actually the best tiramisu other than being in Italy that I've had was in Ethiopia at the Hilton Hotel there. There's a Mm. restaurant and um, it's, it's beautiful tiramisu.
1: Well, I leave for Italy on Friday morning for six weeks in Italy. So I will be fondly sending you like energy vibes of my tiramisu adventures. And if I find any good ones or good spots, I'll send you a note and let you know where they are.
0: I appreciate funny enough uh October 3rd I leave for about a month in Brussels so so, yeah it's uh I I need it's that time to get out
1: (laughs) it is that time (laughs) to get out I want to go back a little bit I want to um before you tell me about gray matter capital a little bit more about gray matters I want to find out about this World 50 organization it really sounds like crazy fascinating
0: it is crazy fascinating I think we uh Being, um, you know, a part of that community, and I'm still very much connected to the team there. We called it, you know, your first year at at, at World 50, we called it an MBA on steroids. Mm. Uh, Because, and I think in many ways, the work that you do, Cameron, is is very similar, which is why I love what you're doing. Because, you know, the idea with World 50 was that, you know, they, they were fun about maybe like 16 years ago was the idea that it gets lonely at the top. And so their first foray into their current business model was bringing together a bunch of marketing executives, it was either HR or marketing executives, into a room, they brought in some sort of like celebrity who could talk to some of the work that they were doing. And going into it, it was no ego, it was informal conversations, it was, you know, the the, the premise that there would be, you know... Um, no advertising, no solicitation, all of your peers of these, you know, Fortune 500 and whatever was said in the room was Chatham House rule that never left the room. And that launched them into this belief of like, wow, there's actually something here because- The execs left with so much value saying that, you know, it is lonely and being able to talk about these key issues and learn from each other Mm -hmm. in an informal environment was the best gift ever. Mm -hmm. And so the concept of the 50 was that you bring 50 of the top executives in a particular function together and you stick them in a room and you stick them in a community, right? And if you're thinking about this as, you know, in terms of like an analogy to a firm, these communities are like client groups and they're managed by a director whose main job day-to-day is to immerse themselves in the challenges, the opportunities, the futures of these particular organizations or functions. Right. And so that was the beauty of the model. And it's since launched. And I think at this point, they have like 30 communities and they oh, they've acquired, you know, one that's focused on healthcare. They've acquired G100, which I don't know if you're familiar with. And mm-hmm. so it's really turned into this much larger global organization where you've got Supply Chain 50, which has the top chief supply chain officers. You've got... Wow. You know, Legal Fifty, which was one that I managed, which was you know your senior legal executives. You've got one for CFOs, you've got one for marketing folks, you've got one for um, private equity backed CEOs because that's a whole separate yeah, yeah. right yeah. other set of issues that you're dealing with and contending with there. Are they, were the events
1: that they were running in person? Were they virtual? Was it a hybrid?
0: Nowadays, it's hybrid simply because I think they were you know very much pushed into it, and mm-hmm. the model is a lot more hybrid, but. Uh, prior to the pandemic, I think you had some virtual events and there were a lot of virtual offerings. And so Mm -hmm. you had podcasts, you had calls where you would bring in, you know, whether it was a board director or, you know, another peer, but I think the in-person gatherings were also to the secret sauce, right? Because it's phenomenal.
1: Have you been to Ted or Ted Women at all?
0: I have not been to Ted 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 Women. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's it's an organization you should be at. I mean, you'd probably walk around bumping shoulders with half the people that you already know that are are probably there. But it's a it's a pretty interesting global organization. So why would you leave World Fifty? Like, well, how did they they pull you away from that?
0: Um, you know, I I was doing pretty well. I I was very happy where I was. Actually, let me just say that I um, you know, I actually left on a very high note. I mean, I had won an award. That was like the second time ever named after the godfather of the organization for developing and mentoring people, which is one of my passions. And, you know, I had been one of the first to switch over from the product development side of the organization to the client facing. And, you know, a lot was there and it was great. And I, my family, I think at the beginning thought I was insane because they're like, you're leaving World 50. Like, mm-hmm. no, we're not doing this. And we're not, really, <laughs> we're not, doing we're not I mean, leaving we're not. your job. <laughs>
1: we're not
0: Cameron, that is the African way. It's like it's a collective we. When you screw up, it's you. But then when anything else is going well, they're like, "We're not moving." Well, oh, we right. bought a house. Oh, <laughs> we love our new car. We love our
1: new job. <laughs> <This is> great, great
0: <laughs> job. So I said there was only, and I contend this: there was only one person while I was old fifty who would be capable of getting me to leave, and that was Erica Norwood, who is the president and CEO of uh, Gray Matters Capital. And that is because Erica and I have a storied history of um, years and years and years ago, we didn't even realize we were going to become these, we didn't see ourselves as these like founders of the startup, but there was an organization that had been incubated within Gray Matters Capital that was a global training program that leveraged social enterprises in India as training platforms to teach people both profit and purpose and how you could take that mindset back into your organizations. Mm. And we spun it off together. And we learned a lot from working together and building a new thing and going through the startup challenges and going from being like, having all of these resources to not having those resources. And it was a phenomenal experience. And eventually my my, my journey took me to Zambia, which then took me back to the States in World 50. And so when she eventually, you know, was tapped to succeed the founder of Grey Matters Capital and I, you know, because we had formed a friendship and we Mm. would always have conversations and I knew what she was wanting to do. We met up for dinner and she says to me, you know, I need your help drafting a couple of JDs and thinking through how I structure out the leadership team and where it's going because my vision for the next era of where GMC can go is, is large. And I've got to turn this thing from being founder led and founder centric to principal led and principal centric. Mm. And part of me knew that she was also pitching me on a roll, okay. <laughs> but I was like, I don't know, because I'm still in a really awesome spot and things came to an head. This was like early 2020 because Uh, One of my bosses calls me in at World 50 and she's like, hey, we want to promote you to to taking over this particular client group. So, you know, let me know what you're thinking, but it's got to happen soon. Wow. And at that point, I'm like, okay. So I go back to Erica and I go, Erica, we usually do this dance where you dangle something in front of me. I think about it. I go back and forth and we negotiate. And then I eventually give in. I'm like, I've been offered something. So we've got to have that. We've got to kind of like half that dance and figure it out today. And so we talked quite a bit about what her vision was and what she was looking for and where the organization was going, the health, the assets, you know, the degree to which the founder had really let go. And at that point, you know, I spent a weekend away, um, really meditating on the decision and thinking through it. Um, and then I came back and said, you know, I think that for where I am today and what you're trying to accomplish in my belief in the mission, that for the transition that this organization is going through, that it's a good time for me to join. Mm. And, uh, and I think part of our conversation too, and I think for, you know, for me, Cameron, this was the important part: was that I told her I might not be the best person for the job once we get through the transition, and I. Oh, interesting. That. Okay. And I know that, and I think that's going to be up in the air and something we have to discuss. But for, especially knowing you and your working style and what I think will be needed, I think I can be the perfect person now. So we agreed like, you know, this is a, okay, let's just get you to commit for two to three years. Um, and on her end, I said, you know, if you leave, then, you know, that changes the context, but here's the agreement going into it. That way yeah. we're not making any promises we can't keep and we're not breaking hearts long yeah, the way. but we know.
1: It sounds like she was really able to pull you into the future. I, I, I actually um, have a registered trademark on something called the vivid vision, which is when the CEO crafts a four or five page description of their company three years in the future. It sounds like she gave you the verbal description of all aspects of the company. Is that what sucked you into, you know, the excitement of the role was really seeing what had to be built or was it a combination of the fact that you already had some track record with her as well?
0: Absolutely. I, um, and by the way, I love that, that the vivid vision and um, you know, maybe a little bit later on, I'll tell you that we did something similarly. So I should have just like stolen it from you instead of trying mm-hmm. to go through it on my own. <laughs> Uh, but we, uh, you know, I think one, it was that vision and where I think Erica really excels is, and and can sometimes frustrate as she's such a visionary and she's such a compelling storyteller that combined, I mean, you know, she, she has sold a lot of people on a lot of things and she's delivered, but she's great at that. And I think that that was what sucked me in, but also Cameron, I do think it was the track record because like I said, you know. If I was going to leave world 50, it had to be for something that offered me a little bit more certainty than what would have felt like taking a Hail Mary on a first time CEO going through a founder succession, attempting to rebuild all of those things, you know, yeah, it was a yeah. risk to take. And so my track record with her, I knew, I said, you know, this is not going to be easy. And there's going to be a lot of, it, it's going to be a marriage. And so I need to make sure that what I'm believing and going into that. I know this person well enough to be committed to that marriage, even at its lowest points.
1: That's the core thing that has to happen between the CEO and the COO. I, I call it the, that yin and yang, like the two in a mm-hmm. box model, mm-hmm. that if they don't get that real trust, that real business marriage, it won't succeed. It's, I think it's the most critical relationship in the organization was, was the fact that you had that past relationship detrimental at any point in, in your journey and working together? I mean, it, 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 I, I can't imagine it's been easy every single day. It never is.
0: No, definitely not. I'm pretty sure I wanted to quit a couple of times. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I think so. Because I think that when you have that relationship, that there are moments you take things more personally than you should. Mm. It doesn't just remain business.
1: Yeah, yeah. You
0: know, there's times that you take things more personally than you should. And so there were moments if she was unhappy with something or if she reacted some way to something or if she engaged with someone in a particular way, there were moments where I think I would personalize it. And a part of it was, you know, like Erica, come on, you know, and so I think, of, you know or, or I would take something home because I knew you know, or because I felt like that's my friend and that's also my boss. And so, you know, I think that there were there were those aspects of it that were hard. And yeah. I think she felt it too, because I know, and, you know, she hasn't outwardly expressed it, but I know, you know, things aren't always going to be done in a way that she would have liked either. Right. And so I think that where she probably struggled onward was, this is somebody that you've been friends with or you've had a healthy relationship with. And, you know, we weren't the kind of friends that like met up like every week, but like maybe once a month. And on top of that, this is someone that you've mentored in the past and that, you know, you've had a different level of a relationship. So Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: giving feedback to that person, I think sometimes I didn't hear things the way I needed to hear things at the beginning. And so it took a while, I think, for us to get into what felt like a very healthy rhythm how do, you get in,
1: how do you get into that rhythm? How do you get to know the other person? I, um, trial and what, error? Or do you, do you like I,
0: use? I think it's trial and error. And I think there's a bit of, there's a lot of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. One, that goes into it. Because I think you, you have to want to make it work. And you have to say to yourself, when it's not working or when it is working, what are the things that we're doing that allow for that to happen? Um, I think you also have to have the right level of check-ins in place where it's not just talking about the business, but it's talking about how you all are coordinating and and the rhythm that you have and what's mm-hmm. working and what's not. Yep. And then I think it's also just the other things. Like I can tell you, for example, um, like we did the, the the how to fascinate, right? Like I am the secret weapon and she's like the maverick leader. And I think That's I forgot Sally what I Yes. Yes. Right. And even when you look at like her Enneagram, I completely forgot what hers is, but I'm, I'm a three. And when we know these things about each other and we know like, this is the hot button. This is how she likes things done. This is how she doesn't like those things done. I think we intentionally worked at it and we intentionally took opportunities to spend time with each other and talk through things, right. That were not just about what is the fire that needs to be put out? Where are we going? What's going on with the founder? What's going on with these hires? But it was more so, you know, where are we? What's in sync, what's aligned? You know, what are we intentionally working towards? And it was also an opportunity for me to get to see a different side of her and for her to get to see a different side of me. And I think, you know, she, she hit the nail on the head when she said, you know, it's interesting to me that when we first worked together to when we're working now, so much professional growth and development has happened Mm. and we're having to relearn each other in that way outside of that friendship that we had formed. And so in many ways, I think I probably wound up being one of her most respectful direct reports because I was very intentional about kind of giving her that respect that was due to her because of what she had done and and not trying to cross those boundaries.
1: It's, you also sound like you said that you were also self-reflective. You had the introspection to probably see what your contribution to some of the problems were as well. Right. Versus just you were trying to figure yourself out as well as figure her out the whole time.
0: I overthink. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people do. I overthink. And, you know, the greatest gift I've had is, you know, I call them my personal board of advisors and one of the things that knowing where, you know, and with Enneagram, they tell you, you know, like at your worst, essentially is what they're saying, this is what you do. And I focus so much on that because Mm. I don't want to be that, that I had to build in rhythms to be intentional about not getting to my worst. And so one of them is just like meditation and focusing on those things and focusing on being reflective. And I remember you know, one of the members of my personal board of advisors said you would do well if you journaled once a week at minimum about what's happening, about what you're learning, because that is one of the best executive tools you can have is to be able to go back and read those things and see the growth and learn even when you think about mentoring other people or self-mentorship. And, you know, so there's a bunch of things that I had to put in place that I still put into practice, you know, like uh, I, I make my morning matcha before I do anything and I go out to the patio and that's a moment when I reflect on, okay, it's Monday, let's think through last week, you know, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? When we spoke to people, did they leave the room feeling empowered to do their jobs or did they leave the room, pardon my French, feeling like shit? And so I think a lot about that. And not to say I get it right all the time, but where I felt I get it wrong, I try to self-correct, apologize, or assess.
1: You've—it sounds like you've got a pretty solid morning routine. You mentioned like, why can't our family trip start at five a.m.? I I co-authored <laughs> I co-authored the book The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs with Hal Elrod. Um, <laughs> what what's your morning routine other than like the morning matcha and, and yeah. do you do you journal? What is it?
0: Yeah, so um, I, I do not journal in the mornings. Actually, I'm, I'm, I journal in the evenings or I have these random bouts where um, I'm almost always waking up at like 3 a.m. for like an hour and I'll journal maybe then. Wow, wow. Um, but my morning routine is really built, Cameron, around negating what I think are the negative workaholic tendencies that I can bring into the workplace. Good for you. And I had to become, and I still sometimes suck at it. Like, even in my own family, they're like, I don't work for you. (laughs) Like, that's (laughs) great. You don't work for me. But, um, you know, hearing back through 360s from my team, they're like, well, she doesn't expect it of us, but her work life balance can suck. And so I try to negate those things by saying, okay, I need to find a moment of calm. And Mm. what I like to go back to, and and this is my biggest belief that drives me and why I think I was able to leave Row 50 is that. If I don't love what I am doing, I don't think I'm going to be of service to the people that report into me or the organization that I'm serving. I just know that about myself. And mm. that reflection helps me because it lets me hit on things that I know are going to be problematic or I'm somebody who can quickly become like personally affronted from a principal perspective if I felt you did something wrong and I can harbor it. And so, which is Been like typical number three, I'll harbor it, I'll hold on to it. And then before you know it, you might do something like click your pen wrong <laughs> in a meeting. And I'm like, this is why I can't stand this individual. They are an awful human being. Look how they talk and they click their pen. But um, and I think about those things, and I think that's actually what helped me get through a rough patch. With Erica where we were really I mean the organization was burnt out I, I, I think we we had to learn pace the hard way and I had been wondering why I was just miserable for like a whole you know like two months I was just miserable and I'd get up and this was I loved Mondays and I loved what I did I would get excited and all I cared about was like making sure my team was okay but I was just not happy and eventually we had a conversation and I said you know, and I think actually the conversation was at like our one year mark or something where I said, like, let's see what's working, what's not working if we're still tracking. And I told her, I said, Erica, I'm not, I've got to be honest, I'm not happy. And I usually like, you know, I come to you with solutions, but I I need help working through this one because I'm not happy. What was it? I, you know, I think that it was the fact that there was so much that we were trying to get done in the organization. I think that there was so much change that was happening. We're bringing on new board directors. We're, 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 you know, building these new charters for the committees. And the team is just feeling the stretch and we're understaffed. And, you know, and and where I needed my focus to be, I could not have my focus there because we also had a lot of like founder responsibilities that were coming Mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And usually she would handle those, but I was getting a lot more of, of what her usual engagement was because she was very much focused on some other things. And so the stretch made me feel as if I could not even focus on doing what I was brought in to do well. And then I had to tap into other areas. And some of those, you know, I think also our communication cadence had sort of gone off and. After two months of getting a bunch of it from coming up and getting a bunch of it from the top, I, you know, even some of the structures I had set into place for myself and for, you know, um, time management and what you prioritize, you know, even my assistant at the time was like, I feel like we had a train on the tracks and it's gone off and I'm still trying to figure out what went, you know, she's like, what went left because we were doing well. Mm -hmm. And we just had to have that conversation and, You know, I think it was such an important conversation for us to have because Erica herself said, I know if you're bringing this up, you've put a lot of thought behind it. And we know some of the issues. Happiness matters. And one of the key things we've always said about our values as an organization is that people need to find joy in the work that they are doing. And, you know, it's on you to find joy in your work, but it's on us to create and curate an environment that allows you to do that. And when it's not there, We work to figure out, you know, exactly why, or if it means you need to be elsewhere. So we worked through it. We talked through it. We discussed some of these priorities. Mm -hmm. We discussed, you know, some of the changes that were happening at a governance level. And, you know, we even discussed the cadence of, you know, understanding when certain great ideas come to her (laughs) that they can't be implemented overnight with all of these other requirements. And... I think it, it, it was another exercise at really going back and recalibrating and then being transparent with the organization to say, hey team, I know we've all been stretched. I know that I've contributed. I know where that's come from. I know I haven't been myself. Let's talk about how we get back to peak performance in a way that everybody feels is healthy and what we're going to put on pause, what we're going to keep moving forward with and, and where we're going to hit the brakes a little bit.
1: Interesting. I liked, I liked the the whole thought process through it all as well. Tell us, just give us brief kind of the the brief overview on, on what it is that Gray Matters Capital does and kind of the scope of the organization, just so we have some idea there as well.
0: Absolutely. So Gray Matters Capital, we are a 15 year old private operating foundation um, and we, we operate globally. So we were actually started by a gentleman of the name of Bob Petillo was a high net worth individual who who made a lot of his money on uh, in an industrial uh, development. He actually created this prototype sort of a warehouse system that launched him to being, or his organization to being like the seventh or eighth largest industrial real estate developer in America at the time. And uh, he came across microfinance, mm-hmm. loved the idea, was also passionate about women being able to empower themselves. And he believed that market-based solutions were sort of the drivers that would get us to to stronger global development. So he committed 94% of his wealth um, to starting this. And he was one of the earlier ones, like this was before you had like that 99% pledge. Like he just said, you know, 94% of it, I'm committing. And that's what he did. And so uh, initial investments, and just very quickly for you on camera, just a quick education. Being a private operating foundation, when we make investments, we, we are impact investors.
1: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm.
0: even the way the IRS looks at, you know, our activities, the investments we make, the primary consideration has to be social impact. And then it has to be impact that's aligned with your stated mission. And they take that very, very seriously. So if you're an environmentally focused nonprofit, and then you happen to make an an investment in an organization that is going to improve the lives of girls around the world. And that's a great thing that you did. The IRS could come back and say, well, you didn't invest.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. It's gotta be that focus. So for us, the first thing is, you know, it has to have that social impact and financial return comes second. Wow. But like wow. any organization, right? Even if grants, right? Grants, you don't just get a grant because you've got a great idea to save the world. They look at your track record. They look at how you manage your finances. They look at the team and they look at like, you know, is it going to be effective? And so it's the same thing for us when we look at business models, right? And and I say us, yes, but that's the investment side of, of the foundation that, We invest in enterprises that have women at the core of their business model.
1: And is this kind of the Muhammad Yunus's model of investing in women and and because they they have a greater payback and they come together (laughs) with five others who also want money? I think it was Muhammad Yunus that was,
0: Yeah, I don't know if he was the first. Yeah, it's a similar concept. It's a similar concept where one, you know, you'll always hear say, other than just being a good thing to do because women are underrepresented and underserved, mm-hmm. it's also good business because, to mm-hmm. your point, women do pay back loans right at a higher rate than men are likely to pay them back. Women are known for being more collaborative. Yep. You actually see the returns in communities where yep. if a woman gets a job or she's educated, what it that multiplies. means to her, it multiplies. multiplies. Yeah. Great multiplier effect, but also the business of it. And I think, uh, you know, the, the consulting firm McKinsey, they released a report, I want to say it was earlier this year, late last year, that actually said that if today we were to implement a number of gender forward initiatives and policies around the world, then we would actually find that by 2030, we would add $13 trillion to the global GDP. Wow. So it's not just a good thing to do. It's right. also
1: it's economically it, a good thing.
0: It's an economically incentivized activity because you increase productivity and we know that that's a core, you know, indicator when we look at, you know, global economic growth. I've
1: I've been doing micro lending through Kiva for about 11 years. Okay. I was I was at the TED conference when uh, Kiva kind of launched their model and and got excited about it. And every time I did a speaking event, I would take a portion of my revenue from speaking and put it into Kiva. And I would say that 97% of my investments are to women. And it's, it's just because there's something that just seems more, like you said, there's a multiplier. I don't, I don't understand the bias I have towards it, but it just feels like the right place to put money. I guess that puts guys at a disadvantage, but they'll be fine; they'll figure it out, right? Like, um...
0: figure it out, uh, Cameron. Can I just say, a uh, having also worked with a lot of speakers through my World 50 Days, that I have such a soft spot for people who do what you do. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe use this as a tagline: "That's like get Cameron out there doing more speaking <laughs> events," because I think that that is phenomenal. So kudos to you. That's incredible.
1: The other thing I've done that I'd like more speakers to do at the, during my speaking event, I pass a bag around and I have people (laughs) take a bill, any denomination and they write their name on the bill and they throw it into the bag. And at the end of the event, the EA from the, from the group counts up all the money and that money goes to a charity that that group feels passionate about. And I draw one bill out of the, um, out of the bag and whoever's name it is, they get an hour of free consulting or free coaching from me. So oh, wow. it's, and I raised, I've raised like thousands of dollars from the stage every time I do a speaking event. And it's just such an easy thing to do that anyway, blah, blah, blah. So um,
0: actually Cameron, one more thing too, that I want to hit on that I think is so critical for people to realize with what's happened with the pandemic and why I think you see so many organizations fighting, uh, especially now to really negate the effects of what happened during the pandemic is that. Prior to the pandemic, we were actually 99 years away from seeing global gender parity actualized, right? Mm. So all of the gender gaps closing. And already that's a struggle because you're thinking about the number of generations that you have to wait to sort of see, right, gender parity. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. of the impact of the pandemic on women, we actually lost a generation. So, or I should say we added a generation. So we are now going to have to wait until about 136 years in just the span two years of this pandemic to actually see those gender gaps closed and that's how detrimental the pandemic has been yeah. to development and i think it's very important to hit on that because i think that's why we do what we do at gray matters capital
1: interesting how many how many uh, people full time part
0: time full time part time so we oscillate like quite a bit depending on what we're working on so we've gone from like 13 people working on the funds to all all the way to like 30 40 but we'll never be uh, one of our key indicators that we look at is ops to AUM. So, you know, for every dollar that we're managing, you know, how much are we spending on operation costs? Mm-hmm. And we try to keep that as lean as possible. So uh, right now we're roughly, if you look at our external asset managers, contractors, internally ourselves, we're roughly around like 20 something right now.
1: And where do you deploy the capital? Is it global? Is it in the US? Is it—is it in certain regions globally?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're slowly expanding more and more into East and West Africa, um, but you know the, the the bulk of where we've deployed the capital has been India, um, and absolutely. and now you know we we have some money invested in Pakistan. We're in Nigeria. We're in Ghana. We are in uh, Kenya. We are in Colombia. We're in Mexico. Um, we have a couple of investments in the U.S. as well as one that is a, uh, uh, interestingly enough, it's a microfinance institution that did so well. Uh, and one of being on the British Stock Exchange that we had to have a conversation with the IRS like we did not invest to make money back. We just wanted to change the world. That's all we wanted. We screwed
1: up. We did. <laughs>
0: like, it was not financially motivated. We just wanted to change the world.
1: That's amazing. What, how do you choose the regions that you put the money into?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think primarily the way India came about was by one, I think the regions that we look at um, and and I'll back up, but I think the key criteria here is it's not just investing in an organization when we say, okay, great. You know, you're based in Nigeria. And um, I'll give you an example. One of them is called Sonicare, And essentially it focuses on maternal health and goes into rural areas with these portable sonograms to allow women to have access to that level of, of maternal care. Mm. And our, our argument here is not just that, okay, we wanna see how great you can do in the rural parts of Nigeria, fabulous, keep supporting you. The goal is, are you able to prove in that market that you can make it and that you can scale beyond that particular market because you've developed a solution that works across other developing or emerging markets. And so we look at that scalability context. And so typically what we found is where you're going to achieve that level of level of scale where you're going to be able to see that whatever enterprise you've invested in has the ability to touch more lives is generally in markets where those things are not as developed or where the infrastructure is still being developed because you're going to reach exponentially higher numbers of people, right? Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. going to take less capital to get there. And the the ability to almost experiment and say, does this work here? We find if it works in India, the chances of it working in Nigeria, the chances of it working in Ghana, in Zambia are pretty high. And so that's okay. generally, you know, what's led there. So India was that, that, that other entry point. And we did quite a bit in India. Um, and then we got into sort of this modular school business in Kenya, which one thing to know about Gray Matters Capital, when you have an entrepreneur as your founder, everyone winds up being entrepreneurial. So you have a lot of hits and misses, but yep. um, we were in Kenya. And then eventually we, we launched an internal fund called Collabs which I personally do think is one of the futures of uh, Gray Matters Capital, where we said we're going to be sector agnostic, but way more intentional about how women are at the core of that business model. And you know, you've you got to clearly you know, be able to show that you're able to generate revenue and we're going to focus on East and West Africa. And that's really what Colabs has done, has shifted. But I think we do go to those developing emerging markets where we think that a lot of that infrastructure isn't as developed as it could be.
1: Makes sense. Talk to me about what you see in terms of the differences doing business globally, like doing business in some of these different regions around the world. Have you noticed any completely different ways and have you noticed any better ways?
0: Absolutely. Um, I think that what's been interesting for me, at least, is the way that one leadership, I think, is also contextualized depending on where you are. Uh, I'm a very informal (laughs) leader, right? Like I tell people like, and I'm huge, I'm like, I serve you and this is how I work. And I found when I go into Africa that, people will sometimes do a double take. And in some of those rooms, it's because I'm a woman walking in and they're not used to like reporting in a woman, but in some of those areas they're like, whoa, what do you you mean? I can just call you Trice. I don't have to call you ma'am. I don't have to do this and I don't have to do that. And I think it's because, you know, I think within the Western context in particular in the US, we're very keen on like even CEOs of major corporations being like, call me Bob. Right, (laughs) Whereas I think you get to some of these areas and it's like, no, call that person, Mr. CEO, most important person in the room.
1: The formalities are still very much present. Yeah.
0: Very much present. And so I think that 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 is very strong. I also think that while we have our own approaches here in the US to garnering trust and connecting with people to get a business deal signed, I, I think generally we still sort of err on the side of like, within the business context. And sometimes I think what we don't value as much as you do in other operating contexts is the relational aspect. And in some areas, the cultural aspect, right? The mm-hmm. regional aspect, where you're coming from, um, you know who you know and by how you know them and, and how they can credential you. And I think that there's so much of that richness that exists in a lot of these non-Western contexts that sometimes it's really hard for people who enter and want to just get straight into business, right? To, to not get that, to not understand that I need to ask about your family, or I need to ask about your parents, or I need to really build and cultivate those pieces because they are so critical and so important and how I show up. And even if I might have a different belief system, it, it has so much weight attached to it that you could lose respect and credibility so easily if you don't emphasize those pieces and do your best to not just ask what's important to this company, but if somebody's briefing you to say, culturally speaking, contextually speaking, what are some of those faux pas? What are these pieces? What matters to them? Where are they coming from? Why? And I think that's just as important. And I think do sometimes think, it's
1: that. Really do you think that your experience of having grown up in the Republic of the Congo and also having worked in Zambia, and do you think it gives you a leg up on, on doing business in North America where you just see a different perspective that than maybe North Americans or Americans are blind to?
0: Yeah. Quick clarification, because I, I always wish I had been able to grow up in the DRC. Uh, my dad's job with the UN, actually where it took us was... Uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Senegal. So I traveled often to the DRC, but I was raised, you know, in, in, in multiple African cities. I cool. today, I'm grateful for it today.
1: Yeah. If you would
0: ask like 12-year-old me when she came here, if I was grateful for it, Cameron, absolutely not. 12-year-old, 12-year-old <laughs>
1: girls are all bitchy. Like 12-year-old girls are all not grateful. Come on. That's the that's part of it. I've, I've got two boys that are 18 and 20 and they were fighting all the time. And I'm like, yeah, you're just ready to get out of the house. Well, show me a 12-year-old girl that's grateful. Come on.
0: Yeah. Like then I was like, you gave me this awful accent and right. you think I'm Jamaican. Like what's going on? <laughs>
1: I think I'm That's they
0: really thought, I mean, Cameron, where my parents sent me when we landed was a southern conservative Christian school oh in the God, south that had help never you. seen me before. And I walk in like African and proud, and they're like, What is this? This does <laughs> not look like the kids on TV with the distended bellies who yeah. need us to send them a oh, donkey. No. But, anyways, um, so I do think that it has because what you know, I think it, it has allowed me to ask certain questions that I learned along the way that a lot of my peers weren't asking. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, what it enabled me to do was I had to have this innate curiosity about the other because that mm-hmm. was the only way I knew I was going to survive wherever we mm-hmm. landed. And I think That's organizationally it. and even from a leadership perspective, when I've landed in areas the first thing I've done, and, and I was known at World 50 for walking around. I never sat down. If I wasn't working or on calls, I walked around. And I almost said, you have to take this anthropo- like anthropological view to things of stepping in, immersing, understanding, asking questions, figuring out the cultural dynamics. I used to often say that like, what you think might be is not necessarily the case. you just got to observe and understand. And mm-hmm. once I was able to nail those things down and say, okay, now I get it. I think that's what made things so helpful for me was being able to then you know uh operate in most any environment so i've often told people like i you know I, i remember when my boss sent me to india uh my first time ever And I had friends who were like, weren't you scared that you landed in Mumbai at one o'clock in the morning and the driver couldn't find you and you had to make your way to the hotel? And I was like, no, (laughs) because my parents were like growing up. They're like, oh, yeah, eat that food. Go there. Don't say you're better than anyone. Go learn their culture. Yeah, go hang out with your friends during Ramadan so that you can understand what it means to be Muslim and how beautiful that part of it is. So they just threw us out there. And that has really, you know, even now, I think people around me are more fascinating than I ever am. Like, I would, I could literally sit here and ask you questions all day, Cameron, right. and I, like, ask my general counsel. I'll pull her in and be like, God, lawyers are so fascinating. Tell yeah. me more. Let's dive in. I think people are fascinating, and, that's, I, and cool. that's always been a leg up.
1: That's come from you for sure. All right, I've got two, two final questions. One I want to yep. go back to, you mentioned that you and the CEO did something similar to the Vivid Vision concept. You had mm-hmm. some kind of a vision exercise or something that you did to really get on the same page with vision. Can you walk us through what that was briefly?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So after I was, uh, I I took about like almost a month off between gigs when I left world 50 and two weeks in, I put some time on her calendar and I said, Eric, I'm going to need you for like three, four hours. And from there, what we did is we went through and I essentially, you know, asked her to walk me through like, what are some awards that the organization has won three or four years from now? What, you know, um, you know, if, when you're giving this, you know, when you're, when you're giving your acceptance speech, what are some of the things that we had to sacrifice to get there? What were some of the people that we brought on to get there? What's the name of the award? You know, like just what does the organization look like? Who are our core, you know, stakeholders in the nomination videos that mm-hmm. were released where people are credentialing or endorsing us? What are some of the people that they said about us? Yeah. And I still have that folder and at times when I think it's so easy to get lost in the midst of change, I'm so big on like, what is your North star that whenever we would have conversations around strategy or where GMC was going, I would take us back to that document and be like, okay, this is where we envision this thing going. Are we still here? Like, is this still where we're going? And it was so helpful.
1: That's so similar. You'll be fast. You should really check out the book, Vivid Vision. And um, or if you just want to fast track on it, um, watch uh, one of the TEDx talks I did called your vision statement sucks. But the book Vivid Vision is a really powerful example. And it sounds like it lines up really close to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, I want to go back to the 22 year old Therese Kabundi. And I want you to give yourself some advice. What do you what do you wish you knew when you were back just starting off in your career that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then?
0: Ah, uh, 22-year-old trees. I mean, I, I would say fail fast.
1: Mm.
0: Fail fast. I, you know, I, I'm i more, I am more comfortable failing today at things than then I was such a perfectionist. I had like a 10-year plan and everything had to be <laughs> perfect. And I was like, I knew where I was going. And if something didn't work out and failure was like the most alien thing, like I cannot fail at anything, right? Can't fail. And I think about opportunities I miss, how much time I spent being so hard on myself to achieve that perfection. I'm like, fail fast and keep moving. Just fail yep. fast and keep moving.
1: I love it. Tris Kabundi, the VP and COO for Great Matters Capital. Thanks so much for being on the Second Command podcast and sharing with us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Cameron. I appreciate it. It was amazing. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.